welcome to the Payments Journal Podcast. And here is your host, Ryan Mack. Welcome to the Payments Journal Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Mack. Now, often on the podcast, we talk about payment trends. But on this episode, we want to talk about something a little different. We're going to dive deep around fraud trends that commercial enterprise face and some of the strategies that they can use to combat those attempts. So to unpack these trends and strategies, I'm joined by John Parquet, who is the VP of Solutions for Treasury Intelligence Solutions, and Steve Murphy, who is the Director of the Commercial and Enterprise Payments Advisory Service at Mercator Advisor Group. So there's certainly a lot of information to unpack on today's episode. So without any further delays, let's start the show. So, John and Steve, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on this episode of the Payment Journal podcast here, uh, where we're really going to be taking a deep dive into how enterprises can protect their operations against payments fraud in 2022 here. Uh, Steve, I'd like to start off today's conversation with you, and perhaps maybe you could give a little bit of an overview for our audience here of what kind of the marketplace looks like as it relates to enterprises and payments fraud. Sure. No problem. I would I would tend to assume that the, a fair amount of the uh, listeners to this discussion are going to have some some experience, some form of attempted compromise and, and maybe real payments fraud occurrences, uh, maybe especially in the past couple of years. I've always uh, gotten my fair share of email compromise attempts, some of which are malware and uh, some calling for me to take some action. And then, of course, there are phishing attempts which generally don't affect me since I never pick up a phone unless I know who it is, but they are often successful. Anyway, at the top of, at the top end of it, it starts with a data breach and then ends up at some point with a payment attempt, most of which still go through banks. So if you take a look at IBM's cost of data breach report from 2021, it estimates that the average total cost of a cyber breach across all surveyed industries is about $4.2 million. And the financial services industry is a bit higher at 5.72. So what they do is measure the cost of a data breach by four criteria, which include detection and escalation, lost business, notification to all parties involved, which, you know, which includes the regulators, and uh, and then the post-breach sort of follow-up response. Uh, and that's even before the payments, they add in the value of any payment. So they've been doing this for about a decade, and anyone who wants to dig into the details can go take a look. It's public, just have to uh, register. Lots of interesting stuff. For example, there's an 80% cost difference between those companies with security AI and automation that's fully deployed versus those who don't have it fully deployed. Uh, Another resource that we tap into for understanding B2B payments fraud is the annual AFP payments fraud and control survey, AFP being the Association for Financial Professionals. The last one they did was done about a year ago, so it have included results and perspectives through kind of the full weight of the initial phases of the pandemic in 2020 and whatever adjustments companies made during that year. We would expect that not a great deal has changed during 2021 or had changed, but we'll know more in a couple of months when the next survey is published. In this latest report from AFP, and their membership, by the way, is generally North America financial professionals, they find that 74% of the firm's 
experienced actual or attempted payments fraud in 2020, which is down from 81 and 82 percent in the prior two years. 36 percent of those companies reported actual financial losses from these attempts, and half of those were between 25,000 and a million dollars. So there is somewhat of a difference in attempts between companies with revenues above a billion for the actual attempted fraud or, or actual fraud was 78 percent versus companies with revenue of less than a billion, where 67 percent of companies were impacted. And then, of course, you you know have the payment types where the attempted or actual fraud occurs and the highest percentage of those continue to be checks and wires. But there's been a noticeable jump in ACH debit fraud activity. Physical commercial cards are at 24 percent, which continues kind of a several year downward trend. And interestingly enough, as one might expect, virtual cards are much lower at 3 percent, which, of course, speaks to a single use token and transaction expiry date. So not sure if any attempts were actually successful. But, you know, interesting. You could take a look at that if you're a member as well. So I'll leave it there, Ryan, and back to you. Excellent. Thank you for that that very detailed overview there, Steve. Really certain do certainly do appreciate it at a high level. Really what I kind of take away from that is that, you know, fraud is a continuing and ever-growing problem, particularly in the 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 enterprise space here. And now, John, you know, Steve kind of unpacked some some personal ways that he's certainly seen in terms of different tactics that cyber criminals have used here. But I certainly think you're a fantastic resource to kind of ask the question from your perspective at TIS here. What are some of the tactics that you see that are being used by cyber criminals to target these enterprises with those fraudulent schemes? Yeah, happy to do that. You know, I think Steve hit on some good points. I think a lot of listeners are probably pretty familiar with the tactics being used because they're, they're living it on a day-to-day basis. And to be honest, they haven't changed that much um, over the years. You know, you have your phishing attempts, you have your check forgery, which is still pretty prevalent, especially in the U.S., right? You have ransomware attacks, which seem to be the ones that, you know, find their way into the news most often where an organization's data is locked up. And the uh, the attacker demands a ransom, usually in the form of an undetectable currency like Bitcoin, right? So those are pretty prevalent in the market now. You have business email compromise, which is the one that Treasury probably faces the most often, really in the traditional sense, where the attackers are spoofing, you know, say, for example, the CEO or the CFO's email address and asking for an urgent wire transfer to be to be made. I think, you, see, you know, most listeners are probably familiar with this one as well. And the two that are maybe a little bit more uh, new, or I, I guess they've just become more prevalent in general in the market, I think are fake invoice and fake wire instruction change requests. So this is where the attackers will actually send in a fake invoice that accounts payable, and it looks just like a real invoice, but the payment instructions on there are to a fraudulent account. Or they might actually you know, attempt to make a request to change to update a bank account in the vendor master from a, a legitimate account for that supplier to a fraudulent account for that supplier, right? So... We're seeing a lot of this type of attack coming in the market. You know, Steve also mentioned the AFP fraud and control survey. I think there was a good stat in there as well that, you know, 60% of the respondents believe that AP was the most vulnerable to fraud within their organization. And I think it's exactly because of these two types of attacks, right? Fake invoice and fake wire instruction change requests. But, you know, more predominantly, I don't think it's, you know, the tactics haven't changed, but the sophistication has changed a lot, you know, over the years. I think that's what, you know, companies are seeing more so. You know, just to give you some example, you know, traditional BC attacks coming in, usually they were only email based. 
We heard an organization tell us about a, a deep fake phone call that they received where the attackers actually spoofed the CEO's voice through uh, recordings to, to say, hey, you know, an urgent wire request is coming in. Keep an eye out for it before they sent the BC attack email, which is just kind of crazy. And, you know, just in terms of some of those fake wire instruction change request attacks, we've heard, you know, organizations receiving attacks where the attackers even knew the original account number. And they, and they asked, hey, you know, here was our old account information. Please update to this account information, which obviously, you know, gives another degree of legitimacy to that, to that request and, and increases the success rate quite a bit. So definitely a lot more sophistication in the market. Just to quote another survey result, there was one by Strategic Treasurer that indicated that between 2018 and 2022, the success rates for BC attempts had doubled, you know, over that two-year two period, which is crazy for me. I came from the practitioner space. I saw BEC attempts weekly, if not daily. And I have to think that a lot of the other members in the um, in the community probably see the same, but it's almost like, you know, these attacks are coming and they still can't be stopped, right? That's kind of what that stat says to me. And uh, I think that speaks a lot to the, to the level of sophistication around these attacks, right? So that's really what to look out for, I think. But John, you know, I, I do want to get into kind of those best practices that, that Steve was kind of bringing up there because you had brought in terms of, you know, that experience of or that you had heard of, you know, kind of that deep fake situation. And then also bringing up in a lot of your examples, kind of the social engineering that the fraudsters will go through to sometimes pull at the heartstrings or have those particular data points on hand that make it very believable that, hey, this is a legitimate change in, in whatever it is the, the flow of the, the money is particularly going here. So what is some advice that you can give to our audience of some of these best practices when helping to defend against digital payments fraud? Yeah, I think there's, you know, in terms of the you know, fraud mitigation strategy, I think there's basically, you know, three components of what, you know, organizations, we typically see organizations trying to put together and hopefully they do put together. So the first piece of that is definitely the education piece. That's where you start, you know, training programs for companies are your low investment, high impact activity, right? So typically this is within the reach of most companies to deploy a training program. The thing to keep in mind is that it's constantly evolving. You know, the threats in the market themselves, as I mentioned before, are constantly getting more and more sophisticated. So Somebody needs to be involved in really benchmarking that training program and making sure it still, you know, suits the threats that the company is facing within the market. So once you get past the educational piece, the second piece are your controls, your internal financial controls. You know, there's probably three categories of these as well. There's your vendor master related controls, you know, being able to control how data is added to your vendor master or changed within the vendor master. There's the payment related controls, you know, limiting your manual wires, which everybody knows is the most risky form of payment and eliminating manual processes in your payment process as much as possible. Right. So uh, moving things to straight through processing, for example, so that no human manipulation can occur along the way and that you can rely on those instructions that are, you know, have been added to your vendor master and confirmed through your normal processes. And, you know, also having payment approvals based on thresholds so that anything sort of above a certain threshold that might reach a higher level of, you know, abnormality within your organization gets a different level of approval as well. I think these, these are critical components too. And then the third, you know, control is the accounting controls, which I think is a critical one too. It's um, making sure that you're reconciling all of your accounts on a day-to-day -day basis. It, it always seems like fraud occurs in the places where organizations just aren't looking, right? It's that, that legacy set of bank accounts that, you know, you had planned to close last year or, you know, that old ERP system that you still haven't, you know, migrated over to the new system. So, you know, it's kind of the best practice that if you're going to have an account open, you are reconciling on a day-to-day -day basis so that you can detect this abnormal activity as soon as it might happen. And all of this, of course, needs to be backstopped by a good policy around segregation of duties. You need to make sure you have multiple people and multiple levels approving each one of these changes as well. That's 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 critical. 
And then once you have your controls in place, I think the third level of a good fraud mitigation strategy is your detection. But I think the controls piece is, is where you identify what that last mile of risk is that you can't mitigate on your own, that you can't mitigate through your own internal controls, right? Which tells you a lot about what you should go out and seek in the market for a fraud detection tool. When we talk about detection, there's probably a few different ways that these tools work. There's you know, account validation services that you can tap into where you can validate certain uh, aspects of a bank account. You know, when was it open that the account information itself is legitimate? Who's the beneficial owner? That's, that's valuable but also very regional. You know, in most cases, these services are only available in the U.S., for example. Um, there's rule-based detection that can pick up on things like, I typically pay this vendor in U.S. dollars, and for some reason now I'm paying them in Japanese yen. That's a little bit suspicious, right, to, to kind of raise the escalation level around a transaction. Or, you know, this is a first-time payee for us. Let's put an extra level of scrutiny around it. And then there's AI and pattern recognition, which is really more holistically looking at the data of the organization to be able to detect abnormalities in payment patterns. So say, for example, you know, usually pay a vendor once a month, but now you're, this is the third time in, in the last two weeks you paid them. That's something that an organization would want to know about. Or if the, the, the value of those payments suddenly increased tremendously, right? That, that's, another, that's another thing that would probably want to be picked up on a detection type software. So yeah, I mean, those are really the three uh, components of a fraud mitigation strategy, I think, about education, controls, and fraud detection. So, John, that's um, that's you know, that that's an example of if you took all of those things and did them, you'd have sort of a comprehensive end to end strategy. But not everybody's going to approach it that way, I would think. Is there any sort of advice in terms of hierarchy as to which of those, you know, which of those approaches might might apply to a lot of companies and they might do first? So, for example, you know, you can't do AI first if you don't have, you know, digitized processes. So if you're doing a lot of manual stuff, AI is not going to do anything for you. So is there anything in that space that you'd recommend? Yeah, I mean, at the point you just made is, is a great one. It's, you know, I'd say the education and the controls pieces are the most critical for you to, um, to sort of attack first, right? Because if you go into the detection capabilities first, you're not going to get the benefit out of those tools. I think you really want to, you know, you need to identify what that risk is and then, and then configure the tool to protect against specifically what that risk is. Otherwise you're going to put a tool in place that's catching nearly everything. And all you're going to create for yourself is a giant work queue of false positives to approve on a day-to-day basis, which is kind of the, the opposite of having a um, well thought out fraud detection program in place. You know, even you brought up the, there's probably a, a lot of buzz in the industry around AI and pattern recognition, but, you know, you're right about that. If you haven't digitized um, your payment activity, you don't have the data kind of consolidated in a way that you can take advantage of those technologies. You can't detect patterns if you don't have a holistic data set, right? So there's definitely precursors to, to each one of these, but I'd say in terms of where to get started and even where to invest in technology to get started, it's very much around the controls, right? So, you know, putting in place good financial controls sometimes is impossible for organizations because of the systems they have in place. You know, if you think about an organization initiating payments out of four different applications, every single one of those probably has a different way that they can put in place controls, right? And each one of those is a different point of exposure, a different point of, you know, connectivity to your banking partners you need to consider. So, Sometimes the best technology investment from a fraud prevention standpoint is something that kind of unifies all that activity, I would say, right, from a technology standpoint. So you also, you know, just another quick question. You, you had mentioned that, you know, over the past couple of years during the pandemic, some, some uh, shift in tactics has taken place. I think you mentioned BEC is more prevalent and you've seen a bit more ransomware. Are there any sort of things that companies have successfully done 
I mean, I would think training, obviously, recognition, how to how to figure out when these things are happening. But any any success stories as to how companies successfully prevent against those types of attacks? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting point. I mean, if, I think if anything, it's probably accelerated people's journey towards automation and digitizing payments. You know, if you if you had manual processes in, in place before the pandemic in the in-office environment, maybe you could deal with them, right? You learn to cope kind of when you're in office, even if your technology isn't the best. On a day-to-day basis, you just find ways to be efficient and secure, right? But you take those processes and you move them to work from home and all that, you know, infrastructure goes away and things start looking entirely different, right? Maybe a good example is a company that has a lot of manual payments, um, maybe in the office environment, you know, it's the technology's not there, but you're able to communicate with each other well, even do, you know, sign-offs on pieces of paper and things like that to, that are hand-delivered office-to-office as confirmation that payments are approved to release, and, and it, you know, just sort of works, right? People get used to it over time. But you go to work from home, and suddenly all those approvals are flying around via email, right? And uh, and that obviously just sort of opens the door really wide to the C attempts coming in and, and potentially having a fraud loss. So, yeah, organizations that did have, I think, good good technology in place, particularly cloud technology that's accessible via everywhere. You know, it doesn't rely on an, in, an in-house on-premise server. We're definitely in a better position than those that, you know, hadn't really undertaken that that journey towards digi- digitization uh, prior to the pandemic, I would say, for sure. All right. Thanks. Yeah, I certainly think a, a lot of really interesting information there and a lot of things that our listeners should be really considering. But I think a lot of our conversation here has really kind of focused on an individual company here. And I kind of go to the saying of, you know, it takes a village to raise a child or it takes a community to send a payment just because we know that everybody is part of the payments ecosystem here. So I'd love to get from your perspective, John, how then like a community based network of, say, trusted beneficiaries, vendors and bank account information can then really help verify the legitimacy of outbound payment instructions to really prevent this payment fraud. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I, I think, you know, verifying the legitimacy of an upbound payment really comes down to data, you know, using multiple different data sources to be able to do that. And if you think about it from the, the attacker standpoint, the criminals are, that's exactly what they're doing, right? They're using automation and data to attack corporates. They know things about the organizations they're attacking through publicly available sources, things like Zoom Info, you know, LinkedIn. They know, you know, organizational structures within companies who might be the ones releasing payments, who might be giving those individuals authorization to, to release those payments. They even know the systems in use, you know, at, at the different organizations that they're uh, they're attacking. They get their hands on internal data, either through some sort of malicious attack or, you know, through some sort of internal slip up. And then they share that information extremely well within criminal networks. Right. That's why the sophistication is is raising so much on these attacks. And so from a you know a corporate standpoint, it only makes sense to then defend the same way with automation and data. I think from our perspective, we realized that it takes a whole lot of data to defend against fraud at a global level. But luckily, there's also a lot of different sources of data you can tap into for these purposes. We've you know, already talked a bit here today about account validation services. There's also historical data of the customer itself, right, that tells you a lot about what, you know, the normal payment behavior looks like that you can use for fraud detection. There's information about the historical vendor master change in, um, in addition of, the, of that organization that helps you kind of pick up on patterns of something that looks suspicious from a master data change. And then there's the data of an entire community of corporates who are also making payments to probably a lot of the same suppliers. And um, when you combine this all together, it becomes a really powerful data set to, to run technology on top of. 
you know, if you think about something that community data can can really solve, maybe take the example of you know somebody somebody with an AP who has received one of these vendor instruct, instruction change requests from a supplier, right? So maybe maybe a fraudster went in ahead and hacked one of the um, the supplier's email accounts. They sent in a request to the corporate that said, "Hey, we've recently changed our bank account. We used to have account XYZ at Bank of America. That's been updated to this account at JP Morgan." The individual at the organization then goes in and makes the change within the the vendor master. Um, maybe they skip the callback because the email came from a trusted source, or maybe they even perform the, the callback and, and and the hacker spoofed the callback number on the email or something like that. We've heard of both happening, really. And now the organization has a fraudulent account in the vendor master, and they're going to continue to make payments out to it until somebody realizes that, right? So maybe four, five, six payments go out, and then the actual vendor calls and says, hey, I haven't been paid for my last you know, five invoices. Have you guys initiated payment on those? And you think you have, but you've actually been paying it out to the fraudulent account, right? So you think about introducing a screening solution in this case. So if you're monitoring against the historical data, you have these payments going on on a day-to-day basis, and maybe people pick up on the fact that you know, this is a first-time payee account. Maybe that's a little suspicious, but if you go look back at the paper trail, you can see that the account change was fully validated, right? Somebody, somebody actually received instruction from the vendor to make this change, so you think all looks normal. Even if you have an account validation service on there, you know, and you're verifying the legitimacy of the account, you can see that it's registered at the banks, but maybe the, the, the fraudster actually, you know, registered the account, or maybe it was part of some sort of account takeover, right? So maybe that doesn't even catch the, uh, the fraudulent attack. But through community, if that transaction runs through and you see, okay, there's 25 other community members that are paying the supplier, but we're the only one paying them to this account, right? Everybody else is paying the supplier through a completely different account. And, you know, looking into the details here, it's actually the one we had on file before we made this change, right? That's a really powerful way to be able to detect, I think, you know, a lot of these attacks and probably a good example of, you know, how utilizing multiple different data sources and layers really helps organizations put in place a comprehensive screening process. So, John, the um, this sort of community-based approach for a typical company, is that is that something that they would access through a single vendor? Uh, is it multiple vendors and APIs? You know, how do they how do they avail themselves of that? How would they construct that capability? Yeah, so it would always have to be accessed through a third-party vendor that provides that sort of service. Yeah, this is, um, I think, a good example of when you assess a fraud prevention solution, looking for something that's going to be, you know, holistic, right? Be able to be able to prevent all sorts of different attacks and how that solution kind of uses data to do that. Okay, thanks. You know, if if we could, I, I do want to kind of add a little bit more complexity here um, when we're taking a look at, at this fraud conversation. You know, Steve had pointed out that, you know, certainly there are a lot of different companies that are on this digitization journey for it. And John, you had brought up the difficulty of preventing fra- payments fraud at a global level. So, Maybe perhaps, John, you could kind of then give our audience a little bit of information around best practices in preventing fraud in a multinational and multi-bank environment. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's probably a couple of things just organizationally to get your arms around, you know, before you kind of undertake this journey, I think, to call attention to is, you know, first, it's the organizational buy-in, the sort of the top-down commitment that, you know, fraud mitigation is a priority for the organization. And, you know, all the different, I guess, activities that are going to go into that are, you know, necessary and, and absolutely supported from the top down. I think you need to have that mindset going into it for, you know, even a basic education program to, uh to really take off and certainly to uh, introduce something that, you know, might impede the process now and again, like a fraud detection type tool, but ultimately serve the greater purpose. And then I think you need to know who owns these topics within your organization. 
you know, and somebody who's kind of constantly measuring the the fraud mitigation strategy the company has in place versus what the threats are in the market, because it's, it's just advancing so quickly these days, it seems like, right? So that's important, too. It's, it's fraud mitigation is never a one and done type solution. It's always an ongoing, you know, constant change management type process. You know, I mentioned step one here is, is training and to get, get your controls in order. And I think we made good points about not jumping to the conclusion in terms of immediately implementing some sort of sophisticated detection tool. Definitely understand what that risk is and, and kind of, you know, make sure you don't have internal control gaps that are easily closed that are ultimately what's contributing to the risk in your process. And then I think that, you know, once you do understand that, that aspect of your business, definitely in, invest in the technology that's going to backstop your specific risk, right? And this is really where it comes in to, um, you know, down to the decision around what tool you're going to use based on what your business is, right? Multinational organizations need to have access to a certain degree of data to be able to prevent fraud on, on a really global basis. You can't rely on things like account validation services that might only be available in certain markets. You can't even rely on, you know, necessarily your own data, right? It, it might not be complete enough to be able to use for things like pattern recognition. So think about the combination of all that data, really, and how that kind of prevents fraud in multiple different scenarios that are, that are occurring across the world, which I think is, is very important as well. So, John, the, uh, the, the type of best practices that you're talking about, do you, in your sort of experience, have you seen any practical differences in how to apply those or what they or what those best practices even are by 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 uh, vertical industry are there any differences in the approach by vertical industry or is this sort of you know proportionally applied across all sort of industries no i think there's definitely something to be said about looking at different solutions you know based on different industries you know i think these are exactly the type of things that come up as you start to close those internal control gaps you you kind of recognize the specifics about your process that make it challenging to 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 mitigate fraud you know if you look at some examples you know the insurance industry for example if you're processing claims payments, you're probably making a lot of payments out to first-time payees all the time. So, you know, a lot of the controls you might be able to put in place to, you know, prevent changes or at least track changes from the vendor master standpoint don't do you a whole lot of good, right? You have a kind of an evolving supplier base. Or in the professional services space or anybody who kind of taps into the so-called gig economy as well, you're making payments out to individuals probably more often than not, right? So. In that case, maybe account validation services are the most critical portion of your fraud mitigation strategy because it's more important to kind of be able to, you know, look into verifying the details of the particular bank account and the beneficial owner of that account. Um, so there definitely is a lot of different industry-specific considerations to take in, in, into account during this. You know, by size of organization, if there's any differences there, there's a time I probably would have said yes. I mean, you brought up, Steve, you brought up a good, I think, stat from the AFP survey that indicated that enterprise level organizations are just facing more fraud threats in general, which I think was the case for a very long time. I think it's natural for the criminals to want to look at the largest processes to attack that, it, particularly with fake invoice and fake wire instruction change request attacks, those prey on high volume processes, right? Being able to sneak something into the normal day-to-day -day business and have things just be so busy that you don't even really notice it, right? So. For a long time, I think that was the case, but, you know, I think that even some of the survey results that are coming out for 2021 are kind of indicating that the largest growth in fraud attempts have actually been at the small organization level. It's, you know, those those organizations are no longer really immune anymore. And, um, yeah, I think that the pandemic and work from home situations are definitely probably contributing to that a bit where, you know, just sort of trying to identify organizations that are maybe further behind on the technology curve. 
more manual processes are on the fraudster's mind just as much as high volume processes are, right? So they're, they're kind of attacking all the way around now and just the, you know, the methods they have at their disposal to launch these attacks on a very automated scale. It's just, you know, they're not going to leave anybody out of the, uh, the crosshairs. So um, I think that's probably changing a bit too. Okay, thanks. Lots of people to think about there. Yeah, no, absolutely agree with that. But, John, before we wrap things up, I'm hoping that maybe you can provide our listeners with some kind of immediate action items here of what enterprises can do to really improve their policies and strategies and provide general employee training and awareness. Yes, I'd say you hit the nail on the head there. I think that the, if you if you're looking to do something very immediate here, it's um it's training, right? It's it's education about the threats that are in the market. It's informing your employees about you know what a fraudulent threat looks like, what a business email compromise attack looks like these days, the different forms that's coming in. You know, both in terms of it being an actual email and it being preceded by a phone call. Same with phishing attacks, you know, informing employees what those look like, and particularly within the AP department, what these fake wire instruction change requests and uh, fake AP invoices kind of look like as they're coming in as well. That is definitely an immediate action item. The other is to do, I think, a review of your internal financial controls, right? You have to be thinking about what do our processes really look like from a vendor change management perspective, right? Do we have, you know, dual approvals in place for vendor changes, vendor master changes? Are we performing callbacks for any wire instruction change requests we get in? So that's definitely another one because that's such a big area of attack these days. And then the other would be just reduction in manual payments, which I know is kind of the uh, you know pinnacle of achievement for most treasury departments is to one day kind of wipe out manual payments completely. But, you know, the more that you can kind of push back organizationally and say, you know, we're not going to do one-off manual payments for urgent invoices, you know, that, that didn't get in through the normal AP process. We're going to request that everything go in through the ERP. Everything kind of go through the normal processes for entry into our systems, come through, you know, straight through processing. We're not going to do manual payments. That's a critical step and definitely will have a, a major impact on your fraud mitigation activities, as well as looking at your overall approval structure for manual payments and making sure the right individuals are involved in approving those transactions during them. That, you know, hopefully the rare case when you do have to actually initiate out a manual payment. Excellent. Well, I think we'll end things on that note there. So, Steve, John, thank you so much for taking the time today for speaking to me about how enterprises can protect their operations against payments fraud in 2022. And I hope to have you both back on the podcast real soon. All right. Thank you, Ryan. All right. Pleasure.